All right, Exodus chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you got a white or a blue Bible that we handed you, it's just like the one I got up here. It's page 31. So right at the beginning, um, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and I'm going to keep reminding you of this because especially on the early going, this is like it's, it's, you could kind of lose track of what's actually going on here. What's happening is God is producing a people that are his people. And he actually referred to himself as Yahweh. That's our best guess anyway. If you want to listen to the Exodus chapter 6 study, I kind of explain that all. I'm going to use the word, the name Yahweh as we go through this. But Yahweh is producing a people that are his people, right? In a very real sense, God had to make a people that were his people. It's not like he looked down on earth and he's like, there's a group of people that are better than everyone else and more committed and more God-honoring and like, I'm going to choose them because they're better, they're mine. Like, that's not how it works. Everybody's jacked. He looked down at heaven and he's like, really? All of them? Yes, all of them. So he took a people and he's like, hey, let's train you up, right? Let's teach you how to live a different life. Let's teach you how to live differently than everybody else on the planet. So that's what God is doing. Everybody on the planet is sinful and corrupt and broken, needs training, needs shaping, needs discipling. Nobody was a pre-made, God-honoring soul that was just born into the world like perfect. And so God is producing a people who are his people. And this is the story of how that happens. And I bring it up because we've spent several chapters talking about the 10 plagues, and we've seen God dealing with the Egyptians and their way of life and how they've been living, the choices, the habits, the patterns they've built in their life. We've seen God dealing with the heart of Pharaoh, the hard-heartedness we've talked about a lot. We've talked a lot about the corrupt way the Egyptians are living and the hard-broken, self-exalting, refusal-to-humble-himself heart of Pharaoh. But don't lose sight of this bigger picture that God is producing a people that are his people, right? So he's doing this in front of his people, kind of like, are you guys watching? You seeing what's happening here? Because here's what's going to happen. The Israelites are actually going to beg to go back to this way of life in Egypt. Like if we were to fast forward about 10 chapters, the Israelites are going to be like, can we go back to slavery? They're really going to beg for that. But remember how awesome it was? And they're going to like drag their feet. They're going to have these terrible attitudes. They're going to like cancerous, terrible attitude, like whining, complaining, like just the whole thing. We don't like this anymore. This is hard. We liked it better. And they're going to tell us some of these fantasies about what life was like back in Egypt and how much better it was. And so while they're begging Moses to go back, it's almost like God's going to be like, remember what happened with that way of life in Egypt? Remember what God was doing there? So God is not just dealing with the Egyptians and Pharaoh during the 10 plagues. He's also exposing this broken way of life to the Israelites so that when they get free, he knows his people are going to long to go back there. And he's trying to bring his people out of Egypt, but also bring that love of Egypt out of his people. Right? You've probably heard it, well, maybe, maybe you haven't heard it said before, right? He's got to get his people out of Egypt, and he's got to get the Egypt out of his people, because they love it. They're like, man, it was comfortable. We just knew what we were doing. You were slaves. Yeah, but it was a good slave. No, it wasn't good slaves. Like, what are you doing? Here's what's going to happen. This last plague that we talked about, it was so powerful, because that type of life leads to darkness, right? We talked about it last week. This is like the culmination. This ninth plague was like, 
All right, you want to live in a way that puts God at arm's distance. You want to turn your back on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You want to resist what God is calling you to do. Fine, you're going to remove all the goodness that God wants to bring in your life. And so darkness, we talked about, was a removal of light, right? That's why this last plague was so, plague was so powerful, because it was like, this is what it's like. If you want to live without me, fine. Darkness, that's the end of that life. So... That's what happens when you remove all the good things that God wants to bring. So let's jump into chapter 11, and we'll talk about how what God is doing with the Egyptians is producing something in the hearts of the Israelite people, his people. So chapter 11, verse 1, here we go. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So God says, one more plague. Well, he actually says, yet one plague more, which is a little bit weird, like order of words. And I'll tell you why that's weird order of words. Um, when we talk about this passage of scripture, we talk about the 10 plagues. And most of you have heard this part of the story referred to as the 10 plagues. You probably have 10 plagues of Egypt. Yeah, I've heard that somewhere before. But just so you know, that's our word for it. We look at this and we're like, oh, the 10 plagues of Egypt. God never called it the 10 plagues of Egypt. God never said, I'm going to bring 10 plagues on Egypt. That was never what he called them. So he, ne he never says, I'm going to bring 10 plagues. Now, you might be looking at this and be like, he just did, Jared. He said one plague more. He called them plagues. The word that God uses here is not the word plague. It's the word touch. It's like if you were to touch something, right? Now, the literal reading then would be one touch more I will bring upon Pharaoh and the Egypt, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we speak in English, like one touch more, what does that mean? But that's why they translated one plague more because they've seen why God is doing this. But I think it's helpful to point that out to us because it gives us a picture of the posture of God's heart in this moment, right? He doesn't say one final blow right? He doesn't say, the grand finale is coming, like, or now I'm really going to let him have it. Like, all of those are really aggressive, right? Mindsets of God. He doesn't say that at all, right? That aggressive type of mindset would imply that he's really angry, or he's like emotional, or this is like physically taxing for him. He's like, I'm going to let him have it. Like, ah, like, it's not one more. He says, I'm going to touch him one more time. It's almost like this, like, peaceful, calm, not taking a lot of effort for him. He's not emotional. He's not expending a ton of energy in this. It's not, like, difficult for him to do. He's intentional about exposing the corruption of the Egyptians and also setting his people free. And to do that will only require a little touch from him. That's it. A little touch. We get pretty emotional sometimes, right? And I've been there where you're like, God, why aren't you doing something, right? You're like, please hurry up. Like, what are you doing? Don't you see what's happening? I get it. Uh, and when we do that, we start to use these big aggressive terminologies, right? We're like, tear down the walls, break the chains, set your people free. Like, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is great. Good for you. But we like the aggressiveness more than like, God is like very much more at peace than we usually give him credit for. Like we're trying to do these really aggressive, like, and God's just like, I just got to touch him. That's all. I just got one more touch 
and then my will will be accomplished. That's what's required. He's not in a hurry. He's not overdoing it. He's not emotional and irrational. He's not going too fast, or he's not taking too long. And he tells us what's required here is just the touch, and his plan will be accomplished. And when his plan is accomplished, it will be even beyond the best case scenario. Like God's not just like, hey, like, I guess I got to get these people out. So if I just do this thing, they'll be free now. Finally, they'll stop begging me for stuff. Like, no, he's actually achieving the best possible outcome for his people. Okay, he's not just settling for like, well, C plus is all right, right? D's for diplomas, right? That's not what God's doing. He's going for best and highest. Okay, look at what happened. Moses' problem with God way back uh, in Exodus chapter 4 and 5 was that God was taking too long. Do you remember? At the end of chapter 5, Moses was like, God, you're taking too long. And this moment, it actually looks like you're not helping your people at all. And that's how chapter 5 ended. He's like, you haven't helped anybody at all. Now, Moses just wants to get out. But actually, that's not the hard part of the story. Getting out is not the most difficult part of the story. The difficult part is staying out. Like, getting out of Egypt? Okay, cool. But when the most powerful, most prosperous nation on the earth wants to catch you, and you're just poor slaves, like, that's when it really gets hard. Staying free would be the difficult part of this story. Uh, I have a movie that I love. Uh, and Liam Neeson's in it, and he's always the toughest human being on planet Earth, which is cool. Like, I don't know how you sign up for that job. Like, I want to be an actor, but I only want to be a tough guy. Uh, but anyway, he, like, escapes from prison in this movie, and he, like, is getting interviewed, and uh, the guy's like, you escaped from prison. He's like, the hard part's not getting out of prison. The hard part's staying out, right? And that's true of what's going on here. The hard part is not just getting out. It's staying out. Anybody that's ever been in recovery or dealt with habitual sin, the hard part is not deciding. I mean, it's a great step if you're like, I decided I'm not doing that anymore. Staying free is really hard. And that's what's going to happen here. Moses has been asking, let us go, let us go, let us go, let us go, let us go. And God's like, he's not just going to let you go. He's going to make you leave. Hallelujah, right? He's not going to just be like, okay, fine, you guys can leave. He's going to beg you and make sure that you leave. It's above and beyond anything that Moses was asking for. Above and beyond anything the Israelites could hope for. Now, you might be listening to that and be like, okay, so Pharaoh's going to ask him to leave. They wanted to leave. Isn't that pretty much the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. Okay, guys, hang with me here. Let's say you go home and you're like, honey, my friends invited me to play golf on Wednesday. Can I go? And she says, fine. <laughs> I haven't been married super long. It's going to be 14 years this summer, but I do know this. Fine does not mean fine. It's like something else. It's like this language that like women understand, like they'll be telling the story to each other and be like, he came in and said this. And I said, fine. And the girls are like, mm-hmm. But like when the girls tell it to men, like I said, fine. And we're like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know, but it doesn't mean fine. So if you're newly married, you're welcome. Life advice from Uncle Jared. It doesn't mean fine. It's just like two steps better than whatever, right? Because whatever also doesn't mean whatever. So let's say the same scenario, you come home and you're like, you walk in the door and your wife's like, honey, 
I was at the store, and the golf balls you like were on sale, so I picked you up two boxes, and then I got you guys some snacks, so the next time you get invited golfing, you can go. And you go, funny you ask, I just got invited Wednesday. Is that a better scenario? Way better, right? Some of you would be like, what'd you do with my wife, right? Like, it's in, like, Incredible, like immeasurably better. If you're in that situation and you're in, like that's so much, and that's exactly what's going to happen here, right? They're not just going to go and know that Egypt is then chasing them down. They're going to go being driven out. Egypt's going to chase them, but then they're going to be destroyed. And they know there's no like anxiety in the back of their minds that Egypt's going to come get us, which is incredibly different than just escaping. And that's what the difference is. The difference between what the, Egyptian, the Israelites were hoping for and what they actually get is they're hoping for this and God's going to give them this. Like, that's always how God works. Like, we settle for stuff all the time and God's like, I actually want to give you more. I actually want to give you better. Uh, like, if you surrender a little bit and wait a little bit and, like, make some good decisions along the way, I'll actually give you better than what you hope for. And so look at what happens in the, in the story. Verse 2. Speak now. So, uh, God is talking to Moses. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So they not only will ask to leave Egypt, they will be sent with gold and silver and favor and respect in the eyes of the people. And this happens all the time, all the time. Often when we're impatient with God, it's because we want something far less than God intends to give us. We want this, and we're mad because God won't give us the thing. And he's like, I'm planning on giving you more. Just wait a second. And that's exactly what we saw from, Fer from Moses earlier. Moses was like, God, you're taking too long. And God was like, I'm doing it. Just give me a minute, right? When we talked about Pharaoh standing at the burning bush, most scholars, like people who study this kind of stuff, they say that the, the 10 plagues took between three to six months. Okay, so Moses was standing at the burning bush probably less than a year ago, probably less than nine months ago, probably like six months ago. Moses was standing there at the burning bush. God was like, Moses, come set my people free. Moses was like, nah, I don't know. They're not going to listen to me. Right. And then Moses was like, fine, I'll go. And then he gets there and then God didn't do it fast. And so got, Moses was like, what's taking so long? Right. Now here we are, six months down the road, and the Egyptians know Moses. They respect Moses. Pharaoh is asking Moses to speak to God on his behalf, and the Israelites view Moses as their unquestioned leader. That is wildly different than what happened when Moses first showed up, right? When Moses first showed up, he's like, Pharaoh, Yahweh told me that he wants to let his people out. And Pharaoh's like, who's Yahweh? And who are you? I don't think God talked to you. Like, he was a joke to Pharaoh. And then when, Mo, when Pharaoh didn't let the people go and made them make more bricks, all the Israelites turned on Moses. And they're like, you said Yahweh sent you. What are you doing, man? They were all mad at him. Now, six months later, everybody respects Moses. The Egyptians respect him. 
Pharaoh respects him, and the Israelites view him as their unquestioned leader. And none of that would have been possible if things would have gone as smoothly and as quickly as Moses would have liked them to go. Let me say that again. None of the things that are happening now in Moses' life, the good things, would have gone, they wouldn't have been possible if it had gone as smooth and as quick as he had hoped it would go. And I say that quite a bit, but it's worth repeating. The Bible is full of stories of God working in people's lives that are both longer and better than people wanted in the moment. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, Moses, Samuel, King David, Isaiah, Hosea, Solomon, Jesus, Peter, James, John, Paul. All of their stories took longer than they hoped and were way better in the end. It's like a biblical principle. The normal way God works almost always ends up being longer and better than we hoped for. So verse 4, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn cattle. Now this is interesting because God is talking about the death of the firstborn, and then he mentions three specific scenarios. And all the scenarios mean something different. Yes, there's just one plague. The firstborn is going to die, but they don't all mean the same thing. I'll try and explain what I mean by starting here. It's been a bit of a challenge as I've studied the particular passages of the 10 plagues because lots of interpretations of the 10 plagues have been some version of the idea that Yahweh is coming against the religious beliefs of the Egyptians, right? So lots of people who say, they're like, yeah, Yahweh is showing himself greater than the religious gods of the Egyptians. And Yahweh is doing plagues that are overcoming the Egyptian gods, but he's doing so much more than that. He's doing so much more than just revealing displeasure about what the Egyptians believe. I actually think that's kind of a super American way to interpret this. Be like, oh, they don't believe the right thing. So once they believe the right thing, they'll be good to go. Like, no, they aren't doing the right thing. They aren't living the right way. They aren't valuing the right things. They aren't living according to the right habits and rhythms and patterns. And yes, they also aren't believing the right things, but it's so much more than just what they think in their minds. We have this thing in America where, you know, we're super into DIY, right? Do it yourself, everything. And we started to do that with religious stuff now. Right? So we're like, I want this, I want that, I want this. Like, I can mix it all together. Like, those things don't work together. They work together for me. Okay. Right? And you're like, oh, but I don't like that. Oh, I don't like what he said over here. Like, this part is hard for me to understand, so I'm just going to reject it. And so we end up with these do-it-yourself religious lives and beliefs that don't mesh together. And we care way more about what we're comfortable with in our do-it-yourself religion than what Jesus actually said. And the result is these crazy compartmentalized lives. And we act like our lives are modular, like Legos. We could just put a piece on or take a piece off, whatever we feel like on that certain day. So they're like, I'm going to take this view of politics. I'm going to take this view of sexuality. I'm going to take this view of public school. I'm going to take this view of R-rated movies. I'm going to take this view of the Bible. I'm going to take blah, blah, blah. And you go all the way down the list, and we got this conglomeration of modules that we think have nothing to do with one another. And when you view it like that, then it's really easy to say, see, 10 plagues, God was upset with what the Egyptians believed. I think addressing their view of justice, their worship of comfort, 
their value of human life, their idol of prosperity, their understanding of responsibility, of leadership, their political structures, their pride as a nation, their lack of humility. I think there's a lot more going on here than just you think the wrong things about heaven and hell. Think about this. If I have a servant in my house and their child dies, what questions does that raise in my heart? Like if Pharaoh has a servant and her firstborn child dies, what questions are you starting thinking? Like, do I value human life? Like this is a moral question, right? Are slaves people? Does their life not matter as much as mine because I'm Pharaoh and I'm religious and I, people think I'm a god and I'm like privileged in this culture and she's not privileged so it doesn't really matter that her child died. Right? There's a lot of moral questions on here. Not just that, but like, do we value human life at all? Like, that's a huge question that comes up. All of a sudden, this becomes very relational. Do I hurt because my servant girl hurts? Do I live with any empathy at all? Right? And then there's some questions about responsibility. Is death now visiting my household because of choices I've made? Right? Is my servant girl's child dying because I she is subject to my leadership and I have led her to a place where, like, if you're a dad here or a husband, like, you should be sitting up in your chair right now like, oh, like choices I make and patterns I build into my life will lead other people to enjoy blessings or consequences. Because that's what Pharaoh's happening, happening right now to him, right? As the servant girl in his house experienced the death of her firstborn, it's because you led her there, Pharaoh. And beyond that, when the livestock dies, that's a much different death, isn't it? We're not talking about the value of human life anymore, right? In this time period, wealth and value are very often associated with livestock, right? So, so is convenience, so is comfort. Okay, so how much of your life now is spent in accumulating wealth and value and it just died right now? As the livestock starts to die, the firstborn of all your livestock, and you're looking out, and this is a different question than like, I led a human being into a life-ending consequence, right? Now this is like wealth and value and comfort and prosperity that is taking a hit. And you might be like, well, it's just the firstborn of the cattle. Like, they have other cattle. Uh, I did a little research today. I'm not super into the financial world, but when the stock market crashed, like all the times it's crashed, it's like 20%, right? So people who are into like finances and wealth accumulation and value and that kind of stuff, like when all the firstborn dies, they're losing their minds. They're like, depression, like this is a big deal, right? And beyond just wealth accumulation, when the livestock die, then the worst workforce shrinks, the productivity plummets, the mansion you were going to build just got more expensive, and the comfort and ease of your life just became more difficult to attain, right? And it just became harder to accumulate material wealth. Maybe you start thinking, should this pursuit of prosperity and comfort be such a significant portion of my life if Yahweh can just take it away overnight? If it can just go like that, Right? It's just like a little sickness among the cattle can ruin my day so badly. All right, there's already a lot there that's not necessarily strict religious thoughts or ideas before we even get to the idea that Pharaoh's son is also going to die. 
Now, this is a big deal because we said before, the people of Egypt consider Pharaoh a deity. They believe he's a god, right? Pharaoh considers himself a god. So the people of Egypt believe that Egypt is a special nation because God has gifted them with a god to rule over them. So they believe Pharaoh was a god sent from the gods to rule over Egypt because Egypt was better than every other nation on the planet, right? So when Pharaoh's son dies, who is next in line to get the throne? Pharaoh's son. When Pharaoh's son dies, and Pharaoh is not only powerless to stop it, but his son was next in line to the throne, this is like a god dying to the Egyptians, right? Pharaoh couldn't stop it. Pharaoh couldn't prevent it. Pharaoh couldn't avoid it. And the death happens. It's like a god just died in front of the Egyptians, along with being led by that same deity into the death of their own children. And then on top of that, you have the parallels of the Egyptians being fine with the killing of Hebrew babies for 80 years. And now the Egyptian babies would be the ones to die. And Yahweh told them in chapter four, this was coming. He said, Pharaoh, if you don't let my son Israel go, your son's going to die. And Pharaoh chose to harden his heart anyway. So we have Pharaoh, this God in the eyes of the people, maybe not knowing this was coming, even though he's told, right? Acting like he was powerful enough to stop it, then not being powerful enough to stop it. Then when it does come and affects the whole nation, he leads them as well as his own household into the consequences while Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, prophesied it would come, brought it in his perfect timing, and will protect his people from it. Look at verse 6. It says, There should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. What my wonders... Sorry, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. In verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of this land. So this final plague will expose some moral questions for the Egyptians, some cultural values, some religious beliefs, some relational practices, some misplaced priorities, the value they have on life, the meaning of life, and the list goes on and on and on, actually. But... In the plague, he makes a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. Why? Why does he make a distinction? Were the Hebrew people better than the Egyptian people? Did they have better values and principles? Did they care more about human life? Did they have a healthier perspective on material wealth? Did they show more empathy in relationships? Did they not make a God of prosperity? We have actually nothing that tells us that. You realize that? We have not read through this and be like, the Israelite people were better than the Egyptian people. Nowhere. The, Egy the Israelite people had better values and not, nothing. We don't see that anywhere in here. We don't read Exodus chapter 1 that the Israelites were good people and the Egyptians were bad people. It's not in there. And the fact that, like I told you in the beginning that when they finally get free, the Israelites are going to complain and say, I wish I was back in Egypt. That tells me this, that maybe they had bought into a little more of the Egyptian culture than we realize. Maybe they had valued the things the Egyptians valued a little more than we talk about. 
you don't have to have the privileges of a culture to idolize the things a culture idolizes, right? Like, I think sometimes you're like, well, yeah, we get the high-level Egyptian people because they were free. They had idols, but the slave people probably didn't have idols. That's not how the world works, right? There's a lot of poor people who think money will solve their problems in life. There's a lot of poor people that make an idol out of money. It's not just rich people, okay? There's a lot of people in difficult situations who spend their lives pursuing comfort and make a God out of comfort. There's plenty of people in this world who think getting their way more is the key to happiness, okay? So you don't have to be privileged to make a God out of privilege. And it's human nature to think that the hope of your life is to do to other people what they've done to us. I bet there's Israelites at this moment thinking, when we get free, we're going to kill Egyptian babies like they killed our babies. That's my guess. When we get our own, we're going to make the Egyptian slaves to us. They're going to build our pyramids, right? We're not going to put up with this. We're going to do to them what they did to us. Let's go. This is going to be awesome. Yahweh's on our side. Let's see how you like them apples, Egyptians. And God's letting these plagues play out in front of the Israelites to teach them, you can't be like them, right? Don't don't try and build a mini Egypt of your own out in the desert because you're now free. And the only difference is now you're on top and the other person's on bottom. I don't think that's what God is teaching here. I think God is letting these 10 plagues happen in front of the Israelites to say, we're not gonna be like this. When we build a nation, when you become my people, when your family becomes a pursuit of me, we're gonna do things completely differently. We're not gonna do things the same. It's just that now you have the privilege and somebody else doesn't. We're going to have completely different values altogether. I think this is just as much, like I said before, about getting the Egypt out of his people as it was getting his people out of Egypt. God is actually going to say it later on in a couple different instances, but this is a great example. He's going to say, when we have a slave in our midst, when we build this new country, we're going to remember the foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt and you remember what it was like. Right? So their, their tendency would be like, nobody was nice to us when we were foreigners in Egypt. And God's going to be like, when you're my people, we don't treat foreigners like that. We live by a different value system altogether. You know how it works if you have one kid who's like the rebel and does, does all the bad stuff and gets punished. And the next kid usually watches like, I don't want to do that. Right? Uh, my wife's family is like that. There was one sister. She has two, so I'm not going to tell you which one. So if they listen to this, they can argue over which one it was. But one of her older sisters didn't follow the rules. Not like crazy, but just was like a little bit of a rebel. And my wife was like, I'm not doing that. I'm following the rules, so I don't have to do all those consequences. I think that's what God's doing for the Israelites here. He's like, watch the Egyptians and the hardship they run into by living life this way. Now you don't live life that way. Think about this. They're going to be leaving Egypt with pocketfuls of gold and silver that rich people gave them. Think about that. Like you're like, I got this whole pocketful of gold. Who gave it to you? A rich person. Did it help them? I guess not. They gave it to me, right? This gold that I wanted so bad for my 400 years of slavery in Egypt didn't help the person that had it at all. 
Later on, God is going to tell them how to build the tabernacle. And he's going to say, bring all your gold and silver and give it towards the building of the tabernacle. And the people are going to bring so much gold and silver that God's actually going to have to tell them to stop giving. Why? Because it wasn't theirs in the first place. They're, they're probably actually getting the message. Like, this didn't help the people that had it before, so why would I hold on to it like this is my hope? Right? The comfort and ease and convenience that the Egyptians appeared to have didn't give them the life they're looking for, so maybe I shouldn't make it a god and idol in my own life. It's like God gave it to me in the first place. He can have it back if he wants it. Right? This gold and silver, didn't, I didn't earn it. Right? God just gave it to me. I just went to my neighbor. I was like, can I have it? She's like, here it is, all of it. Oh, thanks. And then God's like, can I have it? Yeah, you can. Such a correct perspective of wealth. I'm going to finish here. I finished with this idea because I think it's probably the biggest danger for the American church right now. There's a lot of Egypt in us. There's a lot of American culture in our lives, and we're trying to build our own little Christian version of America, just like the temptation would have been to build a Hebrew version of Egypt. And so we're trying to do our own replica of the American culture where we're on top and the liberals are on the bottom. Right? So we're going to get our own TV networks and our own political power, and we're going to live with our own little hard hearts and build our own little kingdoms where we're on top and they're on the bottom. We're going to do to them what they've done to us because we're tired of being on the bottom. We're going to do all the things that we didn't like when they did to us. And I'm telling you, for the next 20 chapters, 30 chapters of this book, God's going to be building a culture that is radically different than that. I actually think God did this in the way he did this in front of his people. The more that I read about this, I think that's the exact thing God doesn't want his people to do. And we don't treat slaves like that. We don't long for those things. Our values are different. Our principles are different. The way we live is completely different. And so uh, we're going to watch as this final plague takes place. Uh, and God continues to build his people. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the way it challenges us and uh, corrects us and gives us hope. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to hear. Sometimes there's these temptations when we've been wronged or see injustice or deal with difficult circumstances to think that if we were on the other side of the same difficult circumstances, things would be better. And you want to blow those, those ideas up, Lord. You want to work in a completely new and different way. You want to create a people who live by different principles and different values, different mindsets altogether, build a different kingdom. And Lord, I pray you would be doing that in your people, in us, Lord. I pray that would start here in individuals as we surrender to your spirit as we listen to what you're saying to us, as we surrender to your will. I'm going to give you like 30, 30 seconds on your own. Just pray to the Lord. Ask the Lord, I just read your word. The things in my heart that need to change are the ways I need to be encouraged, strengthened, there a blessing I've been missing because I've been impatient, been frustrated because you've been taking too long, not doing things the way I wanted to.
just spend some time with the Lord right now.